0: Explaining the gospel up to this point, um, it's a passage that's going to come at you like a bunch of questions if you're not familiar with the end of uh, Romans chapter eight. And I want you to hear these not so much as uh, as teaching tools or rhetorical questions, but almost listen, listen for the victory chant. Listen, listen to this victory song. Okay, let's stand in honor of God's word. I'm gonna. Pick up in verse 31, read through the end of chapter 8. Paul asks, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Father, we give you thanks for this this echo of victory, this beautiful expression of our security through Jesus and his power on our behalf. Would you give us faith? Uh, Would you help us to align our hearts with how we stand in your eyes? And would you remove our fears and give us courage? As your disciples, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Please, please be seated. All right, so um, before we had um, Mia and Lydia affirming and testifying to their faith in Jesus, we were singing this song, right, about, you know, God's, you know, angel of of his armies is on our side. And so, you know, what do we have to fear? Uh, That that song is giving us a picture of what Joshua experienced on the outskirts of Jericho, and he meets the commander of the Lord's army, and the commander of the Lord's army challenges Joshua, you know, if if you are on the Lord's side, uh, you are on the proper side of this battle. Um, It's what you know, Paul maybe had in mind as well when he's talking about how if God is for us, that completely changes the landscape. He doesn't care who's aligned against you. Heaven and earth, powers and principalities and, you know, anything else in all creation can be aligned against you, but if God is for you, you have nothing to fear. Why is that? Uh, Let's look at this outline here where Paul's talking about the implications this victory chant that that he's reciting, if God is for us. And it begins with another question uh, that leads into the rest of them. He says, what then shall we say to these things? And, you know, for the benefit of any of you who are just joining us or even just as a refresher uh, through our series in Romans, we should probably ask, well, what are these things that he's referring to? Uh, And the immediate context is just what we would have seen in verses 29 and 30. You can look back there in your Bibles where Paul talks about this chain of events that God ordains where he goes all the way back to before the foundations of the world, saying that those who God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And those that he predestined, he also called And those who were called, he also justified, and we can throw in there he also adopted, we can throw in there he also redeemed, other things too. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Glorified being put in the past tense, even though when we think of glorification, we think of it as future tense, something that's going to happen when Jesus returns and brings to perfection all of us who are wrestling with the now and the not yet. We've got the Holy Spirit. He's making us holy, but we still wrestle with sin. We still blow it. We still skin our spiritual knee and fall down. And the Holy Spirit lifts us back up, you know, pats us off and sends us back onto this path, this trail of discipleship. So, sanctification is really just. Incomplete glorification. And Paul is covering this, this entire chain of God's activity in our lives. This, uh, what's been described as a golden chain. What's been described as an unbreakable chain. And so Paul is saying, what shall we say then in regard to this chain of sovereign activity uh, in our lives by a sovereign God uh, before whom Nothing, nothing can, can stand. All right, and, and so that's the immediate context, but there's a broader context, too. Uh, when Paul says, what shall we say to these things, uh, he's not just talking about the previous two verses. He's talking about everything that he said since saying, hey, you know, good to, good to talk to you, saints in Rome, um, from chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, this is really the, the very middle of the letter. Um, and so he 's reflecting back on everything that he's explained that really has its, its concentration in chapter three. In chapter three, Paul talks about how God has revealed to the world, made evident, made manifest his righteousness and now not, not the kind of righteousness that that expects us to climb and and crawl and claw our way up above and in competition with everybody else to kind of be king in the mountain and be the best of the best and get God's gold medal, his gold star. You're the MVP. You made it. You're the best. You know, too bad about all those other people. You know, well done. Come on in. You deserve this. That's not the kind of righteousness that Paul's talking about. The kind of righteousness that Paul is describing that God's revealing to us is a righteousness that anyone can have by putting their faith in Jesus Christ, who never sinned, who never broke the law, who never was responsible for any kind of of harm to come to another person or to anyone. And who is was the perfect man, the perfect Adam that we all were meant to be, but because of our own personal sins, failed to be. But through faith in Jesus, we can be justified, declared right, declared righteous, and have a relationship restored with the one who we walked away from. That's, this, that, that's in light of these things. You know, what shall we say? to these things, this revelation of a righteousness that we can have by faith in Jesus. And Paul starts this litany, this chant of questions. Who can be against us if God is for us? How will he not also give us all things if he's given us Jesus? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect if God justifies us? Who is to condemn and who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And, and, the, and the answer is, nothing in all creation. And so it's just this beautiful, encouraging promise after promise after promise. Let's go back to promise number one. Who can be against us? In verse 31, Paul says, "If God is for us, who can be against us? lots of people, actually. Um, it's a little bit of a curious question. Who can be against you? When you pause and think about that question, there's a lot of people that can be against you. Your boss can be against you. Your employees can be against you. Your coworkers can be against you. Your coach can be against you, your teammates can be against you, your boyfriend or your girlfriend can be against you, you know, uh, on and on it goes, your, your dog can be against you, your cat, well your cat is always against you, but even those that, <laughs> the, the, you know, really that you would expect to be close and near and dear to you, uh, look, there's times when the wheels fall off relationally. And people are against us. And here's Paul saying, hey, who can be against us? And we go, well, you know, awkward moment here. I just need to disagree with you, Paul. Well, we need to understand his question. Of course he knows. He's a realist, but he's hopeful in, in, in his realism. He's not saying that nothing ever, you know, is opposed to us. We're never going to experience conflict. Uh, he just got done saying in verse 18 of this chapter that I consider that the suffering of this present time is not worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed to us. So what he's doing is he's comparing this world's, you know, animosity against us and saying when you measure that against the Lord's kindness and love for us, there's really not even any contest. Nothing can be against you. Paul, Paul quotes Psalm 44 in this passage that we're looking at this morning, and I don't know if it kind of rang a little harsh on your ears as you're in the middle of all these promises. And then Paul quotes Psalm 44. Yet for your sake, we are being killed all the day long and are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And you're going, how is that good news? Well, the good news is that our suffering, when we suffer and when there's persecution, is not pointless. And it's not going to... And in, you know, in something that's, that's uh, gonna be unsatisfying. There's not gonna be injustice left on this planet. When, when Christ comes back, it's all gonna be put to right. So ultimately, who can be against us? Maybe you remember being a kid, um, and I don't know if you were on the playground or at home in your neighborhood, but there was that other kid who was bigger than you and meaner and um, just you know, took your lunch money or pushed you or something or whatever. And you, maybe some of you had the privilege of having that older brother or that parent who found out what happened and made things right. And you felt secure, you felt vindicated, you felt, you know, there's order in this world and I'm so thankful for my older brother or, you know, my parent or whoever. So take heart, because what Paul is saying is that that's fundamentally a principle that's going to happen cosmically, that no matter who's against us, and no matter what's happened to us, if we are in Christ, there is a day coming when our older brother and our father in heaven is going to make everything right. It's not going to be anything left unresolved. The great cleanup project of Judgment Day isn't going to leave anything kind of hanging out there where people are going to go, well, what about that? Or what about that? And the day when Christ returns is going to be the most cosmically satisfying day that anyone will ever experience and will carry that satisfaction forward for an eternity, going, just and true are your ways, king of ages. Jesus talked about that day in John chapter 6, and he said, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up at the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. He's the good shepherd. He's not going to lose any of his sheep. Ultimately, no matter how many wolves encircle the flock, none of them are going to stand against the shepherd. And therefore, none of them are going to stand against you or against me. That's good news. It's one of the promises. That's how Paul leads this litany. He moves on to say, you know, in verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, that one, that father, that king, how will he not also, along with his son, graciously give us all things? Can you imagine him withholding anything from you? If he gave you Jesus, the most valuable possession the father could could have, and he gave gave us Jesus, then what else would he hold back? Imagine that that I was going into renal failure. Um, Imagine that both of my kidneys were shutting down, and I was facing a lifetime of, uh, you know, what is it, 15 hours a week or some some awful amount of time that you have to spend each week on dialysis? So imagine I'm facing a lifetime of that, and uh, you hear about it and you go, um, hey, Essen, guess what? Um, I happen to have a spare kidney. You know, you want a, you want one of my kidneys? yeah. Really? You would you would do that for me? You know, and And what's involved there is two operations, right? The operation to remove the donor kidney, and then there's the operation on the recipient, and gotta take the bad kidney out, put the good kidney in. And and I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong though, but I understand that the recovery is actually harder on the donor patient than the recipient patient. But when it's all said and done, I have a new kidney, I'm not facing the rest of my life on dialysis. You, out of the kindness of your heart, you know, have blessed me immeasurably. How can I pay you back? But then I see you in church, and uh, and I see you've got gum. You've got a breath mint. But I'm not sure you're going to, you know, I feel weird about asking you for a breath mint, you know, because you might say no. You might be nasty or stingy. I'm questioning your generosity. I just, I don't know, you know. Does that make any sense at all? Does it make any sense at all that you and I would question God's care or generosity or provision for us? And and I understand that's what we do. We get into tight spots and, you know, the thumbscrews are starting to tighten, uh, thumbscrews of life, and we feel, you know, trapped, stuck, there's painful, it's suffocating, uh, there can be horrible trials, but what this promise tells us, what the cross tells us, is that he who did not spare his son will certainly not spare anything else that we need in order to grow into greater Christ-likeness. If we understand why he's put us here, if we understand the goal, the purpose of our lives through the And dwelling Holy Spirit, our our goal, as Paul told us in verse thirty, is to be conformed to the image of His Son. God's not going to hold anything back that you and I need in order to be more and more like Jesus. And sometimes what that means is He's also not going to hold back trials. And sometimes what that means is He's not going to hold back times when we're called to grow, to deepen, to mature. So sometimes that we'd, we'd rather not. You know, do I really have to be that much like Jesus right now? Um, but he does promise to give us grace for those moments. So God's not withholding anything from you and me. We don't have to be concerned about that. Paul says that he's not going to keep anything back that we need. He goes on to say, who's going to bring any charge against God's elect? There's no way he's going to uh, remove anything from us. In verse 33, he says that it's God who justifies you. Who's going to bring any charge against God's elect? Um, This becomes important because we have to first pause and go, well, the rationale is nobody's going to bring any charge against us because it's God that justifies us. Well, we have to maybe stop for a second and review what is justification. And to be justified means that you you are declared right. You're declared righteous. You're declared innocent. You're you're, You're approved of you're accepted, uh, you pass the test, you measure up, all of those things kind of surround this concept of being justified. It sounds like like a religious word, it is, of course we use it um, in church and it's in the Bible a lot, but it's not strictly religious. Everybody Everybody on this planet today wants to be justified. Everybody wants to be declared right. Everybody wants people to approve of them, to accept them, and to, to consider them as those who measure up. It's a universal heart desire. And we do all kinds of crazy, sometimes really stupid, and sometimes even sinful things in order to try to get that declaration. So the really important thing is when we see what, what is justification, is getting that approval that we all long for, getting that declaration of you're right, you're righteous. Now we have to ask, well, where am I trying to get it from? Because Paul's point here is that who's gonna bring any charge against those who God has justified, his elect? Well, if I'm looking for for justification from somebody else besides God, then yeah, of course, somebody's going to bring a charge against me and it's going to stick to me like glue and I'm going to be undone. But if I'm looking to God to justify me, then anybody can throw whatever they want at me and it's gonna, I'm going to live. You know, I'm, I'm not going to be undone by that. It might hurt, it might smart, it might be unpleasant for somebody to say, Essen, you're wrong, Essen, you're a loser, Essen, you're an idiot, you messed up, you failed, all those words that we're scared to death of? If I'm looking to somebody else, if you're looking to somebody else, anyone who looks to another fallen, broken, frail, failing human being for justification is looking for an unhappy ending. In marriage, if you're looking to your spouse to justify you, to, to, to declare that you're right, to declare that you're approved, to declare that you measure up, um, you're going to have an unhappy marriage. If you're in a friendship, your best friend, and you're looking to your best friend to justify you and to say that, you know, you, you fire on all cylinders and you've got what it takes, that friendship's going to fail. And you can look for justification from your coworkers, from your, you know, your kids, from your parents. You can look in all kinds of places. But that load is too heavy for any other fallen human being to bear. Nobody can bear up under the weight of trying to justify another. The only one who can justify us is God. Therefore, if God justifies me, if he justifies you and says you are approved, you are right, you are righteous, you are forgiven, you are innocent, then guess what that does to your relationships? Your relationship with God is restored. And that gives you the ability and the power to have restored relationships around you so that when that inevitable correction or criticism comes your way and it might be completely out of left field and it might not have even the most scarce, remotest iota of truth to it, you can nonetheless say, all right, Thanks for letting me know that. Let me think about that. And if there's anything that I need to address and correct and change or apologize for, then then I will do that. And it can come from the worst enemy and you don't have to get bowed up. It can come from the person closest to you and you don't have to be undone. And it gives you the power to actually acknowledge, yeah, I did mess up, when it is true it gives you the ability to to ask for forgiveness when you do need to ask for forgiveness. To acknowledge our sin and confess it and seek pardon. When's the last time you asked for forgiveness? When's the last time you said, when somebody corrected you or or criticized you and you said, gosh, you're, you're right. If it's been a while, then maybe, maybe we need to be thinking about where am I looking for justification. Because if I'm looking for justification through other people, there's no way in the world I'm ever going to admit I'm wrong. I've got to be justified. The good news that Paul says is that when our justification comes from God, no charge is going to undo you. Nothing is going to come against you in such a way that it, it messes with you and ruins your life. Paul goes on to talk about how no one can condemn us. In verse 34, it's Christ Jesus who is the one who died. And more than that, who was raised, and who, listen to this, who right now is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Right now. Indeed is interceding for us. Jesus is doing that right now. We just, last week, were looking at these prior verses where Paul is talking about the Holy Spirit who was within us interceding for us, even when we can't come up with the words, even when all we can get out is a groan, the Holy Spirit's praying for us and interceding and bringing those prayers, those longings before the Father. And so is the Son, and he stands at the Lord's right hand and he prays for each one of us. That sounds great. Maybe we want to know, what is he praying for? How does Jesus pray for us? What is he praying for for you? Uh, We get a little glimpse into it in John 17, a couple of places I'll mention. Verse 11, Jesus prays, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given to me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Father, keep them. Guard them. Watch over them. Um, I love living next to these mountains. And uh, I think of Psalm 121, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? It comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. And then six times in seven verses, we're told that the Lord keeps you. He keeps us. You know what a zookeeper is? He keeps the animals, makes sure they're okay, and protects them and feeds them and looks after them. God is our zookeeper. He's our good shepherd. And he keeps us, and he blesses us. In verse 15, Jesus prays that he would keep, that Father keep them from the evil one. I mean, you get down to brass tacks, there really is an ancient evil intelligence in this world aligned against God, aligned against his people, and we would be foolish to ignore the reality of the devil, but we would also be just as foolish to imagine that the devil's just as powerful as Jesus. We know his end, but we've got to be aware of his strategies, too. Jesus prays that God would keep us from the evil one, just like he prayed for Peter Uh, uh, at the Last Supper, he said, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that you will not fall. Um, You know the rest of the story. Peter denies Jesus three times, and then what does Jesus do? Peter, I can't believe you. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. We're done, right? We're through. Jesus restores him. Peter do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter becomes you know this spokesperson who is the champion before the nations at Pentecost a uh, remarkable transformation because he understands and has experienced how Jesus keeps him from the evil one. Last way that Jesus prays for us in seven, John 17:24 Uh, Father, may I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. How's that for a prayer? Jesus is praying for you and for me. Father, bring them home. May they be with me where I am. That's not a prayer that's going to go unanswered. It's just not. Jesus isn't going to lose any of his sheep. We are eternally secure. That's one of the beautiful things of recognizing that, you know, God is the sovereign plan and we are a part of it. And and he is going to finish the work that he began in us. You don't have to be afraid. Your life is moving toward a destination that God is controlling. And it's going to bring you into his eternal home. All right, so lastly, this fifth question, Paul says in verse 35, you know, who is going to separate us? From the love of Christ shall so tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. That's a, that's a lot of things, right? As I said before, Paul's a realist. If the thinking, if thinking along the way that, hey, if God's for us, everything's going to be great, um, you know, we could be imagining that Paul's overstating things, and we hear people tell us sometimes, hey, become a Christian and your life's going to be fine. You're gonna, it's going to be smooth sailing. And when you become a Christian, when you put your faith in Jesus, you know, great things happen. You're going to get rich. You're going to get popular. You're going to be healthy. Your hair's going to grow back. Your breath's going to smell better. It's going to be awesome. That's not what Paul's saying here. He's saying that when you experience the inevitable suffering, the trials of this world, and the reality of the brokenness around us, you're you're not going to be a victim of that. You're not going to be separated from God's love for you. God's still going to fulfill his plans through you. God's still going to preserve you. Theologians talk about the, the, the perseverance of the saints and the preservation of the saints. The perseverance is God's sovereign activity to love us as a good shepherd and to keep us into his fold. The preservation of the saints is that mysterious combination of God's sovereignty and our responsibility where we keep believing in Jesus. We keep turning to him, we keep following him. We just wake up the next morning and say, what's my next step as a disciple? And God preserves us on that trail. He keeps us despite all hell breaking loose. You're not gonna be lost. So. You know, here Paul, at the end of this great, uh, wonderful expression of this righteousness from God that's revealed, we can be reconciled to God by faith in Jesus whom he sent. Nothing, no one, no power, nothing in all creation can ever hinder God's work to reconcile us to himself. God's for us. So let me just wrap up with what Paul says is a conditional clause. He says, if, it's a big if, if God is for us, who can be against us, right? Everybody thinks that God's for them, or you know, at least they hope that God is for them. Um, but it is a default paradigm, right? I mean, we're gonna celebrate July 4th uh, tomorrow, and I love our country, and I'm thankful for our country, and I do believe God's blessed our country, but. Well, you keep seeing God bless America and you, you keep hearing this sort of default mode of, you know, hey, we're, we're his favorite nation. You also compare that with Islamic terrorists who are blowing themselves up, believing that God's for them. You, you see it on, um, on the sidelines of, of soccer pitches. You see it on the sideline of the basketball court where you've got... You know, uh, everybody playing for Chile and everybody for Argentina praying, God, give our opposing team the gift of humility, the grace of, you know, this loss so that they can grow in modesty. Uh, You know, so whether it's uh, Cleveland or Golden State, you know, all these teams, everybody's praying for God to give them the victory. Um, You know, the... The conservatives are, you know, hey, we're moral, God's for us. And the liberals are saying, hey, we're merciful, God's for us. And the good people are saying, hey, we're good, God's for us. And the, you know, people that don't really care, they're saying, hey, we're honest. You know, we're transparent, God's for us. So everybody thinks God's for them. Who is God for? That's the million-dollar question. Who's God for? God is for the repentant. God is for those who are broken and humble in heart. God came to earth in Jesus Christ and pursued those through Jesus. He pursued those who were against him. That's, that's me and that's you and that's everybody on this planet who ever since the garden decided, you know what? I don't need God. I'm gonna live an independent life from him. Uh, I'm going to pursue my own kingdom. I don't want his kingdom. And, And God loved his enemies to the point where he sent Jesus to die on a cross to reconcile all who would turn from their independence, their autonomy, their pride, their arrogance, and rely on Jesus, confess our sins, and receive his righteousness. But it takes repentance to do that. It takes a turn of heart away from sin and to Jesus. And that is who God is for. Those who repent and turn to him. Romans 5.8, Paul says, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? Earlier in chapter 2, he said, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. There is a day coming, right? God's righteous judgment is going to be revealed. It's going to be a day of immeasurable satisfaction. Every wrong is going to be addressed. Every injustice is is going to be made right. The problem is all of us have contributed to that. And it puts us all in a corner. We're, who's gonna stand before a just judge? Not me, not you. And that's why we need justification. That's why we need Jesus. That's why we need to turn from our sin and, and receive Jesus. That's why God is for the repentant. The reason why no, nothing's gonna separate us from the love of God is because Jesus was separated in our place. When he was on the cross and he experienced that darkness and he was forsaken by his Father, he did that in our place. And that's what guarantees, because that justice has been served, that's what guarantees you and I will never be separated from him. So the real question is, not so much is God for us. You know, We could ask the question equally, are we for God? Are you for God? God is not for those who are trying to make themselves great. God is not for those who are trying to build their own kingdoms. God is not for those who are trying to live by their own agendas. That's what sent this world into a death spiral in the first place. But what does Jesus say? Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. And that's why he says, Follow me. When Joshua was getting ready to take Jericho and he's got his sword in his hand and he's ready to fight, all of a sudden he comes across this mysterious figure. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? This was this man standing before Joshua with a drawn sword in his hand. So Joshua's trying to figure out friend or foe, are you for us? or are you for our adversaries? And the, the man said, no. Joshua's going, That run that by me again. Um, are you for us or for our adversaries? No. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord, and now I have come. And listen to what Joshua does. Joshua's the captain of Israel's armies. He meets this guy with a sword. He says, I'm the commander of the Lord's armies. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? Joshua did the unthinkable before somebody with a drawn sword. He laid down his sword, bowed down before him and exposed his neck. I bow. You, You are my king and my Lord. I'm for you. Have you done that? Have you bowed before your king and your lord? If you have, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we give you thanks that you have come to this earth and have pursued your enemies to forgive our sins, and to bring us into your family indeed, to love us as children, to care for us as sheep, to give us an eternal hope and future. None of this uh, do we deserve. In fact, uh, we had turned our own way. But you laid all of our sins on Jesus, and so we give you thanks for him. And we pray that you would help us to live lives that reflect this hope um, despite hard things and despite difficulties. Lord, I pray that we would not forget that you have promised to be with us, that nothing will be against us, and that you will give us everything we need to be conformed more and more into end.